Hello and welcome to the Centre Place podcast. In today's episode, we're going to explore the links between interpretation in place and the strong connection that this has with the protection and appreciation of our heritage. Now, when I say heritage, I'm sure most of you probably know what I mean by that. But I feel there's no harm in giving you a little recap on the type of heritage we're going to be talking about today and also for the people who perhaps might not be sure. Now, a lot of the time when people think of heritage, they think of material goods. For example, vases, books, a 200-year-old clock, all that business. However, heritage also encompasses the built and natural environment. This includes, obviously, buildings, townscapes, archaeological remains, and on the natural side of things, rural landscapes, coasts and shorelines, and agricultural land. Now, a lot of the time, the term heritage and cultural heritage are used interchangeably. But the main difference is heritage means something that's been inherited. So this tends to involve property. For example, think of a lovely country house, National Trust style, been passed down for generations. And obviously what tends to come with that is money. Money tends to be involved. Now, in contrast with cultural heritage, this doesn't really consist of money or property. It's all about the cultural values and traditions our shared bonds and belongings to community. So that's the main difference between the two and today we're going to be looking at cultural heritage. Now you're also probably wondering who is today's guest and what are some of the things we're going to be talking about today. Well I'm going to be talking to Dan Boys, the founder of a company called AT Creative. AT Creative was established in 2005 and it was the first ever company to create downloadable audio guides focusing solely on outdoor places. They now offer a wide range of high-quality interpretation and learning services, which inspire visits to heritage sites. Now, a lot of Dan's work is based on the principles of a man named Freeman Tilden, and our conversation delves into who Tilden was, how his work and six key principles helped hugely with the protection and conservation of national parks and landscapes. We also talk about some of the projects Dan and the AT Creative team have been working on, and the transition the company's taking into using apps to deliver their audio. In addition, we learn what inspired Dan to combine walking and oral history to make audio trails back in the day in 2005. And finally, how Tilden changed the face of heritage interpretation with communication and psychology. Now, before we crack on with today's episode, I do just want to apologise for the slightly iffy audio at certain points I'm not an expert in audio editing software I've tried my best but it's definitely listenable so I hope you enjoyed today's episode and I'm trying to get better with it so hopefully in the future there won't be parts with a little bit of iffy audio just let you know beforehand this week we've actually changed the business name from I was actually gonna. I was gonna start by saying that because I saw um, on your your little email thing, and um, I was like, "Oh, you've actually changed the name." So it's was isn't it like audio? It's AC Creative. So yeah, Audio Trails Creative, basically. What brought the change on in name for that then? Well, when I first set the business up, what we did was audio. Well, what I did was audio trails, and um, it was it was a perfect name. And people used to say to me, "Oh, you've got such a good you know name and domain name." But over the years, as my skills have sort of expanded, and as I've started working with other people, uh, we've offered more and more things. And obviously, as technology has moved on as well, and actually, the name Audio Trails was becoming a bit pigeonholing because people thought we just did audio. But I still wanted to keep a link with the name um, because it served us well. So 
the AT is, is AT for audio trials. And then the creative is obviously just to sort of represent that we do a lot of creative things. We offer quite a lot of creative services. So, I mean, it's only a name, but it just felt like the right time. I suppose if you do more than audio, it could m- mislead people, like you say. So it's good to just yeah. change it, branch out a bit. So It's a little opportunity to sort of contact people again and remind people that we, we still exist. So, yeah, that's what, we, that's what we felt, really. Yeah, yeah. Would you be able to give us some examples of the kind of projects you do then? Yeah. So, I mean, we still do audio trails, um, but sort of a, a lot less. In terms of recent projects, we've done interpretation planning. So there's Pontefract Castle in, in Yorkshire, and they are, or they've pretty much finished now, a huge um, restoration program of the ruins at the, at the castle. And they wanted to review the whole visitor experience. So they brought me in to, to look at how we can um, improve the interpretation on site, layering in it, looking at the audiences, um, the sort of provision for physical and uh, digital interpretation so i completed that earlier in the year and now they're just looking at implementing that plan we do formal and informal learning packages so sort of key stage two key stage three mainly so yeah infants and junior school packages for sites do exhibitions so um we've just done something for a museum around brexit actually looking at the (laughs) yeah yeah i mean it was um we interviewed lots of different people working in the countryside, so everything from shepherds to fruit pickers, and asked their opinions about Brexit. And then we created this little, little exhibition at the Museum of English Rural Life down in Reading. Um, so that was quite an interesting project to do. We also do, I suppose the, the major thing we do now is apps, and that's been a progression from audio trails. So the audio trails were, were very much a, you download an album of tracks and you listen to them at specific points along a trail that relied on people listening to the audio at the right place as apps became sort of more prominent well, probably about 10 years ago and a sat nav became a popular mm. thing and phones became more capable of doing things we started looking at how we could automate some of the audio trail processes using gps to trigger content and things have evolved to the point where our apps now are that they're location aware and they deliver audio and text and video um we've just launched an app now which uses augmented reality it's a project called the the minehead maritime mile and as you go along the the seafront you can unlock content so we've got uh, archive videos that you can unlock but we've also got these 3d models that you can actually bring up on the beach or in the harbor so there's the 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 harbor is a the last commercial boat to leave was called the Emma Louise. And so you can bring that up in the harbour and sort of move it around and play around with it. So things have sort of progressed on quite a lot. And our, our app platform, we've, we've actually got three. So we've got the, the native app platform, which is for iOS and Android. We've got our web app platform, which is a, essentially a website that can work on any, any device with a browser. And then we've got our audio tour guide one, which focuses purely on on the audio. Well, it definitely seems like there's so much more scope to do stuff with apps and everything. And I, I think you do notice that when you go to museums and things, you see it a lot more. You don't really get just the solo audio guide anymore. They are trying to, you know, they might have little videos and so on. 
But originally, what was it that drew you to the audio? Like what made you want to make audio trails before you sort of developed with the technology further? I found a collection of oral history recordings um, at the place I used to work at, which is the Peak District National Park Authority. And with a lot of oral history collections, they've been recorded and they've been put on CD and some on tape and put at the back of the cupboard and sort of forgotten about, really. And what I wanted to do was bring those, bring them to prominence, really. I mean, obviously, you can't just put the whole thing out there. So I wanted to tie them in with walking trails. So as, as people were walking around a particular uh, walking trail, they could listen to these stories in, in the place that they actually were. And, and I think that's really evocative, really. Oral history, there's nothing like listening to someone retell a story. and You can, you can hear that emotion in the voice. You can, you can hear the pain if it's been a bad thing, or you can hear the excitement if it's been, if it's been something you know, incredible. And, and that's really powerful. And, and, and audio has that, that ability to sort of um, put pictures in your mind. And it, in, in most cases, it's, it works so much better than scripted. But if done well, scripts can work really well. You know, if, you, if you're creating a trail for kids, for example, we did – we did two audio trails along one route in the Brecon Beacons National Park. One was using oral histories and interviews with experts to reveal the sort of industrial heritage along this particular route. And then what I did is I, I used that content and created this fictional character. We called her, we called her Gladys. She was a, a goblin, a sort of feisty goblin. And we created this character that would guide children along the same trail. So whether parents were listening to the, the sort of more grown-up answers they were getting uh, a version that was more appropriate to them of course the other the other thing about audio is that it's screen free so our audio tour guide platform we sort of say you know you press play and put the screen away we can use gps to trigger content at the right time but you you don't need it out you don't need to look at the, the device you can listen to the audio as you go and still taking your surroundings there's there's obviously sometimes that concern that with apps you're focused on the screen rather than what's actually around you. So it's, it's a really powerful tool. And of course, if people are accessing it on their own devices, then it's unobtrusive. You know, there's no there's no panels in the landscape to ruin it. You, you sort of listen to it on your own device and you go again and there's nothing left behind. Yeah, I definitely agree with you about the emotion that you can get in audio and oral history. Because, I mean, I do think the apps have potential as well. Like, they're good, but at times it's just it's nice to actually see. And like you say, just listen to, like, the actual stories that are encased within that landscape and what's been and gone there, like, what's happened. It's like, I mean, and, and every place, you know, it's, it's layered with history. So, I mean, you, there's so many stories that you can tell and you interview one person, they'll give you one perspective, you'll interview someone else and you get another perspective. And it's quite nice to sort of weave those together. So to give people, you know, more than one side, um, obviously it comes down to finding people who are willing to talk. But it's, you know, when, when you get those, you get those gems every so often where, it, you know, it really is evocative and, and, and very powerful. I also wanted to ask you, because I know a lot of your work uses the principles of Freeman Tilden, and I was just wondering if you'd be able to tell us in more detail who he was and what his principles of interpretation were. Yeah, um, Freeman Tilden was American. Uh, he was born in the um, 1880s, and for most of his career, he was a, a successful journalist and also a, a fiction writer. But when he was, I think he, I think he was 58, he started looking for a new challenge, and he sort of evaluated his strengths and his interests and realised he wanted to work in what he characterised as, as the facts. Now, 
perhaps by chance or, or by fate, he met the director of the US National Park Service, who typically sort of wax lyrical about Yosemite and Yellowstone and all the other national parks. And this must have hit a chord with Tilden. He'd certainly written about conservation before, and, and it, I think he considered himself a conservationist. And he probably sort of, the two of them probably hit it off straight away. This director certainly recognised his talent. And actually, I don't know how soon after, but he employed him basically to have carte blanche to, to roam the national park system and, and, and formulate a plan for public relations and interpretation. So he, I mean, bearing in mind, he was about a 70 by the time he produced his first book, which was really his, his views on the national park and conservation. And soon after, he wrote another, not a book, it was like a, a sort of glossy pamphlet type thing to, that was aimed at major donors to contribute money to the National Park Service. Um, this was around, well, it, it tied in with the, the centenary of the National Park Service. Now, both of these books were a success and, and they certainly got sort of lots of money coming in on the back of his book. And Tilden obviously had a, a receptive audience. As I said, the, the, you know, him and the director hit it off and the director was certainly someone who was looking at interpretation, not just as the icing on the cake, uh, but something that was at the heart of National Park's preservation and protection. And this led to, well, his most famous book, which was called Interpreting Our Heritage. Uh, and this is the one he's most most famous for. And in it we get, well, probably the, the, the most quoted of his words, which are, through interpretation, understanding, through understanding, appreciation, and through appreciation, protection. <clears throat> so basically, if we realise and discover how special something is, then we're more likely to cherish it and look after it. But the, the book itself, I'm just opening the pages now, he had six basic principles, and I'm, I'm going to have to read them to you because I, I can't remember them off the top of my head. But <laughs> but um, but that's that was what his book was. It was intended almost as a, as a field guide. It wasn't something you read once and put, put on the bookshelf it was a book that you keep going back to to refresh yourself and remind yourself because every time you read it you pick out something new or because you've you, you learn something every time so his his six principles were with number one any interpretation that does not somehow relate what is being displayed or described to something within the personality or experience of the visitor will be sterile so it needs to be relevant Information as such, sorry, this is number two, information as such is not interpretation. Interpretation is revelation based upon information, but they're entirely different things. However, all interpretation includes information. Number three, interpretation is an art which combines many arts, whether the material presented are scientific, historical or, or architectural. Any art is in some deg degree teachable. Number four, the chief, art, sorry, the chief aim of interpretation is not instruction, but provocation. Number five, which is one I've always sort of never really got my head around, is interpretation should aim to present a whole rather than a part and must address itself to the whole rather than any phase. I think that's about looking at you know how each part fits into the bigger picture, but I'm, I'm still never really sure about it. Yeah, it kind of sounds like that to me as well. Present it as a whole. Maybe that's so it would appeal to more people. I'm not sure. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and sort of people will argue about exactly what it is. Uh, but the six, what, the six one's clearer. It's interpretation addressed to children, and he says, say, up to the age of 12, 
should not be a dilution of the presentation to adults, but should follow a fundamentally different approach. To be at, be- at its best, it will require a separate program. And, you know, that's sort of coming back to what I was referring to with this these audio trails in um, in the National Park in, in the Brecon Beacons. We did two separate audio trails to, to, to relate to do two different audiences. So, I mean... The although the interpretation at, at the time that that Tilden was writing about this was mainly through live interpretation, so guides who would have a group or, or individuals and and talk through them. Um, there are also roadside panels as, as well, but these principles are as relevant now with all the media that we have to use as the, as they were then. So it's it's sort of pretty impressive, really. Yeah, no, I feel like that. They almost seem even more relevant now when you read them. They just seem to fit so well to, you know, what you can do today. Absolutely. You know, it's quite surprising, like you say, that he's actually managed to stand the test of time. People still use this as the, like, benchmark thing when they're looking at heritage interpretation. I mean, uh, in terms of, uh, I mean, the word interpretation and, and indeed the, you know, the the craft of interpretation existed long before he came along, probably even before he was born, because that can be, it was probably credited to John Muir, who was heavily involved in setting up the National Park Service in the in the US in the first place. But I think what Tilden did, you know, he was at the heart of developing those underlying principles. I think before it was just about sort of education programs without really thinking about the the sort of psychology and because he had because he was a he was a journalist and, and obviously a good communicator and clearly someone with a, a keen perception of human nature he was able to develop these um, these guidelines and pretty impressively get them pretty much right at the first attempt I guess he, he did a lot of traveling. Um, you know, as I said earlier, when he had carte blanche to travel the national parks and he, he observed practitioners and visitors. And he also tested these methods on, on visitors at great sites. So, you know, it, it didn't just sort of fall in his lap. He had to work hard at it and he spent a long time. As I say, he was, he was into his seventies, I think, when he wrote interpreting our heritage. And he was, he was very well read and very intelligent. And probably what I think is, because he he wasn't grown up in the national park system and he didn't come through the sort of ranger program that they had, he was able to probably look at that subject with a with a more open mind. It's easier sometimes to look at things when you're not heavily involved in it and, and come up with these with these things. So you know, just just a very well, clever and insightful man, really. Yeah, no, definitely. I actually feel like his language is quite flowery, but even though it is, it's so easy to understand. And also, like you say, I think that psychological element and the fact that he's just so good at relating to people, like I say, it's just so easy to understand. Everything just falls into place. You know, when 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 someone's good at what they do, they they make it look easy, and I think that's that's sort of it, really. You know, if 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 you or I were asked to come come up with a book when none of this existed, it would have been a hell of a lot of work, and I certainly wouldn't be able to come up with anything. Oh my god, yeah, it'd be nuts. I don't to be honest, yeah, when you think back, you're like, how on earth did he even start and just get it so right? Like it yeah. just seems spot on, really. Absolutely. You know, he these principles are, are really solid and, and as I say, they're based on this sort of strong understanding of communication and, and psychology. You know, he probably would have been as good a psychologist as he as he was a journalist. And I, I guess that this National Park director probably couldn't believe his luck when he met Tilden. 
Um, you know, for, for Tilden, it was his second career, and he was he was clearly enthused by it. And for the you know the, the two of them together, they they sort of you know because obviously the director needed to employ him to be able for him to do it. So it was sort of hats to, hats off to both of them, really. Yeah. When what what year was it that he actually wrote this book? Nineteen fifty seven. It was published. Um, wow, it's crazy. Honestly, because yeah, all this sort of emotional psychology stuff, it just seems very. You wouldn't think they'd be thinking things like that then. <laughs> Uh, no, absolutely, and, and and obviously without without that book, then I mean I'm sure the interpretation there and and certainly here wouldn't be at the stage it is now. You know, the, as you say, that the whole when we're interpretation planning, we come up with learning behaviours and and all, all these different behaviours that we look at to to try and assess how effective the, the interpretation is going to be. I just don't think we'd be there without without the work that he did to sort of you know the, these strong foundations. No, definitely not. Do you think? You know, obviously you have branched out into using apps, technology. Do you think that makes it difficult or more easy to touch people's emotions? Because obviously that's one of his key sort of themes is getting to their root of their emotions to sort of draw them in. And Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's important to say that nothing compares to, to face-to-face interpretation. You know, when, you, when you've got someone who's good, obviously they need to do it well. But if you've got someone who's really good at interpreting, you know, you can have that interaction with people. There's a, there's a two-way thing going on and they can respond to the audience. The audience can ask questions and, and that that's really powerful. But what things like audio trials and apps do is they, they fill the gaps because obviously you can't have staff and volunteers available all the time for all the people. And apps give that option, you know, because you can have, you can do so many different things with them. If, if, it, if it's done well, then yeah, you can definitely touch people on, a, on an emotional level. The key thing is it, is it all comes down to planning. You know, if you, when we, you know, when, for example, the Pontefract Castle project I mentioned about, I didn't approach that thinking, oh, we're going to, you know, have these outputs at the end. I looked at the site and the audiences that we were going to be addressing and then sort of developed that plan from there rather than thinking, oh, you know, we're going to have an app at the end of this. And in fact, there isn't an app. But it's it's very much thinking about how we want the people to feel when they're there and what we'd like them to learn to, and to take away and then come up with the, the relevant thing accordingly. Yeah. When do you think, his principles people started to sort of put it into a more museum-y context personally I may be wrong but just myself I feel like it only seems recently you go into museums and they really seem like they're trying to get you on that sort of emotional level rather than just dry like reading boards and they're a lot more immersive yeah I mean the museums for until you know relatively recently were all about sort of you know little labels weren't they quite often with latin names on them and certain things i mean i don't do too much work in museums but i mean there's been a massive shift certainly in the time that i've been working in interpretation that it's actually end user focus rather than the curators of the museum thinking this is what i want you know i want to say it's thinking it's the other way around what do people want to 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 find out about and learn and what's going to make it a fun experience as well so they're you know they're less stuffy they're more they're more experiences now rather than just a sort of a dry collection of things with some, as I say, labels in Latin. So yeah, that's. I think you're right. It's, for a lot of museums, it's it's very recently. I mean, obviously, there's some that are, are more advanced, have been doing it a bit longer, but there's others that still still haven't. Well, I've got a long way to catch up. When was it that you heard about his book and started to want to use his principles in your work? 
I did a, an interpretation course. I don't know if it was an introduction to interpretation or something. By uh, it was it was a course run by Susan Cross, who's um, she's an interpretation consultant. She runs a business called Telltale. Fantastic, really good. And it was her that I think most courses will always any interpretation course will mention Freeman Tilden at some point, and and she certainly recommend you know went through who he was and and his and his principles and you know. Because everyone applies his principles to interpretation planning, we have this, you know, this, this sort of bedrock. And certainly, reading this book, as you say, it, it sort of all started to make sense, really. And then you can, you're sort of, um, you're inspired to um, want to do what it says, you know, uh, trying to trying to achieve what he set out in his book. Uh, so you, you know, you sort of you understand it, you you appreciate it, and you want to develop those projects really that, that aspire to what what he laid out. What do you think he would think today about the way we're interpreting national parks, monuments, museums? Do you think he'd think it's going in the right direction? He, it was his sort of second career, this interpretation, and certainly he, he wanted this changing career to, to sort of leave, I don't know about so much a legacy, but have, have some sort of impact on the world. So he's certainly done that. I think he'd be delighted that, you know, his principles are still held up as the, you know, the, the basis of, for interpretation. From what I remember, he, um, I don't think he was too keen on technology. And obviously technology at that time was you know, the, the odd audio player. So I think he'd, he'd probably need some convincing about whether, whether that was a good approach or whether more guides should be used. But um, I certainly think he'd be impressed in terms of how his principles have been taken forward by people and, and how his thing was about protection. I mean, obviously, you know, the National Park Service was about protecting these landscapes. So anything that, that helps that, it was protection first and interpretation, but he's, you know, if the two could be mutually beneficial, then as far as he was concerned, that's fantastic. So I think he'll see the fact that people have used his work to protect landscapes he he would be absolutely delighted, I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, like you say as well, I mean, having personal contact when it comes to this kind of thing is good, but I think it's unrealistic, really. There isn't going to be enough guides to go around for everyone at a certain time. Technology's helped so much. One of the key things for me was when, when I did, created my first audio trails in the Peak District, I sort of had this this eureka moment. I thought, well, you know, you can down, you know, why can't we download audio to, to use as interpretation? And I, I spoke to some of the national park rangers who agreed to share their walks that they do sort of once or twice a year or, or sometimes a few more. But if you can go to those walks, you can do them. So they were keen to adopt these audio trials because it meant people could go and do them at their own leisure time. Because not everyone likes going on a, on a guided walk anyway, as well. Some people like to do it on their own. So the audio trail is a way of still learning as you're going round, as you say being, being being able to access them all the time is is pretty good whilst you can't ask questions directly there and then with the technology we've got today you, you know you can go back home and google something if something's you know um, piqued your interest or you can always contact in this instance the peak district national park you could always contact them and say oh, you know, i've listened to your audio trail can you tell me more about so and so and if you're piquing people's interest then you've you've prov- provoked them and, and as one of children's principles then if you've if you've provoked them then that's that's a, a real good good thing and you, you're well on the way to achieving what you're what you set out to do no definitely uh so i'm going to round up now but the final thing i did want to say was where can people find you on social media and um, what is the link to your website yeah so the, the new website is at-creative.co.uk but our our existing audiotrails.co.uk website is also still up and running 
we don't do so much social media now. We just sort of tend to to focus on on the website really to put our stuff on. But I'm always keen to talk to people about project. Sometimes it, it you know people just want to find out a bit more about the technology that we do and the things that we do. And I'm quite happy. To, I'm always happy to sort of answer questions about that. Great. So will the old website become redundant at some point? I'm guessing. I'll, I'll slowly phase it out. I mean, I've got no plans. Because the Audio Trails brand is quite strong, but in the in the sector I work in, because you know an app isn't something you go and buy every other week, or, you know a project will tend to have an app and that'll be it. So we're always looking for new clients generally. So you know it's I'll, I'm going to keep it there because there's links to that website. Um, but, but as I say, over time I will phase it out so that we've just got the the AT Creative website, which is a bit more glossier and and, and looks a bit bit better as well. Yeah, I did have a look. It does look very nice, I have to say. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoyed it, you know the drill by now with every other podcast. Please head over to iTunes and give it a rating and review. I'd really appreciate it. To find out anything else Sense of Place podcast related, please head over to the website, which is www.senseofplacepod.com. Here you'll find bonus content, links to social media, etc, etc. That's all from me for now. So I'll speak to you again in two weeks.